Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. All right. Thank you for uh, helping with that. So we're now coming back to our series, Life in the Big City, with a little twist. We've made it uh, sort of uh, big city life in which we are, we've been looking at the end of Hebrews. We've been in this for uh, a number of uh, months. And we've made it to chapter 13, verse 6, started in chapter 12, verse 18. So today we pick up in verse 7, and this, the end of Hebrews, a very important section, is sort of a wrap-up, and it does two things for us. Uh, Number one, it will summarize sort of the whole uh, message of the book in a very unique way we'll, we'll be teasing that out over the, few, the next few weeks but it also gives us the how and the why which we are sort of desperate for uh, as the message of the book comes true to us and today we're going to review uh, to bring you back up to speed because it doesn't make any sense to hear the summary if, you, if, you, if you're not real. You need the message of the book ringing in your ear in order for the summary to have the punch that the writer of Hebrews wants, wants it to have. Um, and, and, and sort of here is our imagery. This is why we've called this thing the uh, life in the big city. Uh, because here's the text in chapter, we're going to come across this actually in in a few weeks, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So he uses this city image uh, to describe what's ahead for us, who we are, how we are supposed to live as citizens of a city that isn't here, that kind of thing. Uh, and we've visualized it like this. So we're here in this city, the city here though is not lasting. So it's, it's no place to plant your flag. It's, it's no place to call home. So what Christ has done by coming into our life, we put our faith in him, his death and his resurrection. He is, is made us, given us the hope and fulfillment of an ultimate city. That's the big city. That's Revelation 20. That's what Hebrews is describing, and Revelation describes the end of 22. Remember, this great city we're going to be a part of. And so uh, we have this sort of eternal, ultimate hope. Now, what does the impact of being a part of that city, citizens, literally of that city, have on our life here while we live in this city, on this, in the small city, the one that's here, the one that's not lasting? Uh, well, let's just think about the city image for a minute. When you think of the city, you say somebody, you live in the city, uh, you work in the city. It's, there's a lot of hustle and bustle in the city. There's a lot of activity in the city. There's political implications, cultural implications, social implications, relational implications. There's, there's, uh, there's a way of doing things. There's lots of interactions. There's movement, um, personal, and there's activity. The city is a hustle, bustle place. That means one day in heaven we'll be in a hustle, bustle place. There'll be a lot to do and a lot going on. It'll be like living in a city, a big city. And what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, what Revelation is saying, what other gospel 
or what other writers are saying in the news, is that we're a new society. We're a city ourselves. And we function and operate like that, like a community of people, sort of uh, 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 citizens of a place that's far from here. And the dictates of that city sort of are what distinguish us. They make our life what it is here. So we kind of live in exile. We're citizens of this city, but we're here. We're a small city in ourselves, a group of people trying to make it home. So we're here and we sort of live as outsiders here. The things that are valued here are not valued here. Uh, And so we get our values from this city. So we're citizens here. That means we get the benefits and the responsibilities of being citizens of this place. So... uh, If you live in exile, you know, you're sort of an alien. You're a foreigner. And your home is somewhere else. And your heart is always drawn toward it. And that's what it's like for us to be in this city. And in this little society, which you're going to see emerge from the pages of this book, is that community you're in. That believing community that you're in. Which in the New Testament is the church. You're part of this church, this new society of people who are on their way to this big city. They have this ultimate hope and dream. Um, You can't be a city alone. You can't be a city alone. You've got to be sort of connected to the whole dynamic of the thing. Your, your life and spiritual life will be that. In heaven, that's how it will be. We'll be a part of a big city. And there, there won't be any sort of power grid that, or uh, uh, generator that runs the whole thing. God himself will be in the center of it. And our whole life will orient around him. But it'll be lots of movement and activity. He will dictate everything. There's not even a need for the sun because he will be shining that bright in it. So we, we completely live from him. And so on our way there... We experience a little bit of that when we're together and function like a city in a new society of people. That's who we are. So we experience God as we we live in community with each other. That's what we have learned through this book. And so we're sort of, the book of Hebrews is saying, well, how do you make it to this city? How does this city impact life here? And what is this journey like and how are we going to make it to the end? That, that, that's what this is about. It's very similar. Remember, this is a, the, the book is Hebrews. It's a group of Jews who have come to faith. And they are a community just like the one I'm describing. And they are, they are wanting to be this kind of community that makes it all the way to here. But there's some struggles. They're paying a pretty high price. And some of them are bailing. And the writer of Hebrews is coming along and saying, you know, you started well. I've got to make sure you get all the way to the end. And so how do we journey together? And he takes this group of Hebrews who have this incredibly rich history. I mean, God formed this nation, uh, you know, through Abraham. And now uh, he's going to say, hey, let me take you back to, to illustrate where you're at and what, what's happening with you guys. Let me take you back to the first generation. 
And he uses them in the first part of the book of Hebrews. He says, remember, they were in Egypt. Egypt. You know what? Let me do this over again. Egypt. All right. And remember, where were they headed? Promised land. And he says that in there. This is where they were headed. So they were sort of on their own journey. And he says, let me take you back to them. Let's learn from their experience. Well, you remember the first generation? Only two families made it out of here. You remember how many people made it out of Egypt? Only two families make it into the promised land. Well, that's sort of a scary thought. And he's trying to bring the seriousness of of that to the Hebrews. And when we read it, the seriousness to us. I I don't know that... There's a more serious piece of literature in your New Testament than what he's about to say. Because some people start out well, but they don't make it to the end. And, uh, you know, they were called to be a unique people. They were sort of strange and different. They were supposed to be the nation different than all the other nations. There was supposed to be a light to all the people. There was supposed to be led by God and shaped by God the same way we are. And we sort of have formed a community to help each other be that while we're here. Even though we're all looking toward home. So look what he says to them at the beginning of of Hebrews in chapter 3 actually. And he's quoting the Old Testament on their story. He says, oh, that today. He's looking at the group he's talking to today. So when you hear today, you hear it as your day. Today, right, literally today for you. Literally today for them. And what it would have been like for them in the past. Today. Important word. You would listen as he speaks. It's important that you, where you are right now is the important thing. He says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Takes them back to the past. They rebelled on the way. Remember, there's a big old wilderness in between there. That's what, you know, that's what was in here was the wilderness. And it was a tough journey. And so he says to them, You know, they heard and they rebelled. You say, how many of them? Listen, all who came out of there, Joshua and Caleb were the only ones that made it in. And against whom God was provoked for 40 years in that wilderness they walked through there. You say, Oh, look, it says they sinned and their dead bodies fell in the wilderness. I mean, that's a graphic image. Just fell dead in there and they never made it to the end. To whom did God swear? They would never enter his rest. Why did God swear that? Because they were disobedient. They didn't want him to rule them. And their faith died. After all that God had done for him. And so I want you to see the connection between these two things. This disobedience and this unbelief. And they didn't get through that wilderness. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, 
How do I get you through the wilderness to that future city? Um, And that's the message for us today. And here's what he says to them. Look at this. See if we can find this text here. Uh, No, it's not there. It's here. See to it, brothers and sisters. There's your community. Okay, that's who we are together. That none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart that forsakes God. It's the message of the book of Hebrews. We're going to have to do that together and for each other. Exhort one another. So we've learned through the book of Hebrews, we need one another to, to help us make it through. Each day, there's our great day word. As long as it's called today, that none of you may become hardened by sin's deception. In the wilderness, when you're wandering, sin gets deceitful. Very deceitful. For we have become partners with Christ if in fact, and watch this, we hold our initial confidence, literally steadfastness is a better way to translate this word right here. Steadfastness. Initial steadfastness all the way to the end. All the way to the end. So there's this sort of beginning point and there's this end point in the writer's mind. It's how we think usually of the spiritual life and it's one of the problems in our, in our Christian culture today. Most of us think of, some, we think of something that happened to us in the past and we really hope that that gets us into heaven. But we're really sort of messed up here in the middle. That's what the writer of Hebrews is concerned about. People who look at Christianity and think of it as only as something that happened to them in the past and really hope they get in in the future. He said, no, 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 there's a whole middle piece. How do you live the Christian faith in the middle without bailing on the faith, becoming disobedient and unbelieving? That's his concern. Sin is deceitful. You say, what, what does that really mean? Well, you know those times, you know, I think there's two words that come to mind when you think about these two words. And, look, and this is how he describes them. Uh, let's see, I was, we were just looking at that. Get back to this. Uh, sin's deception. Hardened by it. This is a scary thing. People start out steadfast, then their heart gets hardened and they never make it to the end. You say, what is it about sin's deception? You know those times there's two words that ought to come to your mind. Desire, I want what I want. And defiance, I'm taking it. Ever feel that? I want what I want and I'm taking it. So there's a kind of defiance in there. There is not only do I want what I want, but there's a sense in which I say to God, I'm taking it whether you like it or not. I'm going to do this whether you like it or not. And that's when the heart hardens and pretty soon you're running your own life. That's what, you know, you ask yourself, does that ever happen to you? Well, how are you going to make it to the end? How are you going to get out of that? 
Because that's the scary piece. I was just recently brought to my attention that a, that a young couple who went through church here, I remember when they were kids and they, grew through, and they went through our youth group and they gave their lives to Christ and they became leaders in our ministry. They got married here. They went off to go into ministry. And just recently I heard that they have verbally just abandoned the faith completely. A lot of people fade and some people just defiantly lose it. I mean, if, you, if you've ever talked to people of faith, they'll tell you either, either it's weakening, it's gone, uh, or it's thriving. The writer of Hebrews is worried about those. Uh, so he has, he has given us this image of how do I begin well? And end well. And what happens in the middle? And what I need in the middle is community. Exhort one another. See to it, brothers and sisters. Um, I need the community to get me to the end. It's how I experience God. And, And build my faith. And my faith gets built by other people speaking into my life and me speaking into the life of others. See, the Hebrews, this is why this is so important. You know, there's this little community that we are, this new society. You know, Matthew calls us the little city on a hill. We're a little bitty city in a bigger city heading toward the biggest city. We're a city ourselves. And what happened was, this is what was happening, and I want you to see this connection. Um, They were abandoning this community because it was starting to get costly. They were being persecuted for their faith. And every time they got together, people knew they were Christians, and that's how they persecuted them, took their property, and all this other kind of stuff. And so what they were doing was, they were bailing on the community, and they were alone. And the writer of Hebrews is coming and says, you can't bail on the community. You need the community to get you to the end. This is that, uh, this tends to be that group of people that want to come to faith, don't want anything to do with the people of God, just hope to show up at the end and I'll love all the Christians when I get there. But I don't love them today. I don't want them to be in my life anywhere now. And God is saying, if you don't want them in your life now, you're not going to want them in your life later. You don't get the bail on the community. It's equivalent to bailing on the community is essential to bailing on your faith. They're similar. You've got to hold your community tight the way you do your faith. They go hand in hand. When people leave the faith, what's the first step they make? Leave the community. That's the first thing they do. Because they don't want to be a part of the people who are going where they're going. And so this whole idea that I can be spiritual, but, I, you know, we hear it all the time. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I don't want to have anything to do with the group. Hey, I will tell you, the group's nuts every now and then. I, I pastor one. I know the group's nuts. But you don't get to bail on it. I don't get to bail on it, and you don't get to bail on it. When I'm nuts, you put up with me. When you're nuts, I put up with you. There's more of you. 
So you don't get to bail on this. So he's saying, if you bail on the community, it's equivalent to bailing on the faith because your faith needs them to get you to here. It's extremely arrogant to imagine that you can make it to the end and never be deceived by sin. Because you don't need any other voices in your life. That's what I'm describing. Um, do you remember the, I mean, I don't think there's a better illustration than, than this, even though you, you probably know it well, Homer's uh, The Odyssey. Um, Ulysses, or uh, uh, Odysseus is on his way. He's also called Ulysses, is on his way to, uh, I remember in my freshman year in college reading this story, this, the, this Greek mythology. It's the only thing I remember about my freshman year. Is reading this. And uh, I remember he had to get back to Troy. And in order to do it, you got to pass by that island of the sirens. And the sirens were these uh, incredible creatures that were sort of mysterious and beautiful. And melodious sounds would come out of their mouth. And they, they would be filled with such appeal and promise that they would entice you so badly, you could not, you could not ignore them. Uh, but, the, but the promises were false. Uh, the best way to illustrate it is country music today. It's country music today. That's right, you know it. You love it, but you know it. And so... The sirens, they would call out to you, and you couldn't help it. And what happened was in the shallows, probably telling you things you know, but in the shallows were these sharp, rugged rocks that no ship could survive. And so it would lure the ship in, and the ship would get stuck and and start to sink. And then these beautiful creatures, I think we have a picture of it. He gave it to me. I don't know if I have it or not. Do I? Yeah, there it is right there. Uh, they're, they're flying around and they're these beautiful creatures. And uh, so they know they got to pass by them. But the problem is, is that they're actually what they are. Uh, as soon as you get stuck, they, be, they reveal their sort of demonic character and they turn out to be cannibals. Flesh-eating little demons. And they just eat the crew. And so you get lured in and then you become eaten. You get eaten. And so nobody survived it. Couldn't go by the island. So what he does, what, what Odysseus does, is he makes all the crew in the boat put beeswax in their ears so that they don't hear the sounds because there's no way to not hear the sound and not fall for it. But he says, I want to hear the sound. So what I want you to do is tie me to the mast. And, I, and no matter what I say to you, don't you dare let me go. And so they get close, and you've probably seen a movie or two of this, and you hear the sounds, and they're beautiful, and there's promises, and there's images that come to mind, and they're so alluring that he is literally going mad hearing them, and he's screaming for his crew to cut them loose so that he can go. And they will not do it. They actually make the ropes tighter as he screams. Pretty soon they get to the other side. And the whole point of this is to try to say, we're never going to get through this alone. I need somebody to, to, to tie me to this mast or, or I'm going to blow it because sin is too powerful. 
And there's just, there's no way he could have done it alone. There's no way he could have got home. And that's the same thing in our lives. We will struggle with sin. Sin is powerful. And there are times when you will go out of your mind. Have you ever not? Have you, do you ever gone out of your mind? Hasn't anyone ever tell you you're out of your mind? You've at least been told it. I have been told it and I have been out of my mind. There are times when I want something and I, and I shouldn't have it and I demand it. There are times I'm out of my mind. And we need, to, we need help. One of my favorite illustrations that I think will uh, tease this out, I may have mentioned it already in Hebrews, but it's gonna be, it'll, the, the picture will become clearer even as we go through the end of this talk. Um, uh, Disney just had their marathon. They do it every January. Walt Disney World puts on a marathon for these runners. And um, I had since learned sort of over the years, I've picked up the information that most the, the, the people that fail in a marathon fail the most in the Orlando one. And the reason is, is when you're running through Disney, there's just so many places that they can't allow people to be, that the runners are on their own and there's no one there to help them, cheer them on, give them water, whatever it is they need. And so a lot of people bail. And Disney knows it. Disney knows this is not an easy race. And so if you go online, and I did, I wanted to verify this. I found, look at this. Uh, tips for spectators. Disney World Marathon Weekend Survival Kit. For the spectators, because they make the point right at the beginning, spectators play an important role for the runners. And they, they mention guests aren't allowed in so many areas, especially through the tough parts of the race, that we need to guide you on where you can be and make sure you're there. So, if you read this thing, it's really exceptional because the way Disney's mapped out, sometimes it's in the dark so that even when you are able to cheer on your runner, you can't see them. It's sort of an interesting uh, marathon. Uh, But there's very, very limited viewing points. And so, you get to the end and uh, spectator viewpoints for for this run are limited to the start and the finish. The start and the finish, it says. That's very interesting to me. You can send them off and you can greet them at the end. But even at the end, here's the thing. At the end, there's there's such limited seating to welcome everyone at the finish line that you have to, according to this, you have to make sure that you make a plan with your runner to find them when this race is over. That's how significant it is. And this is what they say. Do you want to hear this? This is, if you're a spectator and you're, you're doing it, here's what they say. We recommend that once your runner leaves for the corrals, you get on the monorail and head toward Magic Kingdom so you can be ready to cheer for your runner when they hit Main Street. Spectators don't have to pay for parking there. Or you could see them as you go through the Ticket and Transportation Center and then walk over to the Polynesian Resort and see them as they pass the Floridian Way. You'll need to get back on the monorail to get to Epcot. Epcot, you have to buy your ticket And you'll see them as they pass Spaceship Earth, but you will miss them at the finish line. And this is, like, I don't want to run or be a spectator. (laughs) Like, I don't want anything to do with that marathon. 
Show me pictures. It's hard being a spectator and it's hard being a runner at this place. But you got to have both and Disney knows it. And they've done everything they can to accommodate those spaces where you're running alone. And the writer of Hebrews says, you'll never make it. Don't even, don't get into this run. Don't get into this spiritual life and think you can make it on your own. You just can't do it. And so uh, when we come to the end of the book, that's the message of Hebrews. And the, uh, And so we get at the end of the book sort of a synthesis of that message and a little bit of what do we do with that information? Like how do we apply that principle that you just mentioned to my my life? How does it work and why? And um, so let me take you to the passage we're going to look at first. This is the heart of chapter 13. This is the heart of it and it's the end. And I want you to notice, I haven't read the two verses that come in 7 and 17. There's a few verses to cover at the end, but they're sort of capstone verses. This is the essence of what we're going to be studying. And I put this here so that you can see, look at what it says at the beginning of it and the end of it. It's almost as if it's creating a sort of uh, what we call an inclusio. Uh, let me, this is, what I'm about to tell you in here is contained in this particular kind of structure. And look at the structure. Remember your leaders who spoke God's message to you. Reflect on the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. And then at this end, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls and will give you an account for their work. Will give an account for their work. And let them do this with joy, not with complaints for this would not be advantageous to you. So here you have leaders. Now, the redeemed community. In between here, in between you have this incredibly important theological discussion that takes the, the, the guts of Hebrews, what Christ has done for us in this very technical uh, redemption of giving his life for us. And it puts it in this conversation here for us to chew on. But it fits it into this structure. So this right here helps us understand how this book ends and how it becomes practical and the structure that it fits in. So you have this redeemed community who are supposed to live out this good news of Christ having died for us and risen from the dead and now reigns over us. But, I, but he wants you to see this great truth that we all love about Christianity in the structure in a, in, a, in a set structure, this is, this is I, I called it in the first service, like a, it's like a theological sandwich. These are the two pieces of bread. And I, I did mention in the first service that we probably have some young people in here that because we don't eat bread in our culture, uh, they don't know what a sandwich is. It's very possible that we don't know what a sandwich is in this culture because we're, we're eating all the meat. Listen to this. We're eating all the meat, leaving out the bread. And here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. You, this, this meat in here works in the structure. You don't get to leave it out. You've got to fit your life in the structure. This is the faith that we were talking about. This is going to help you with your faith and what it is and how it looks and how it works. This is the community that it fits in. 
You don't get to avoid the structure and just have the faith. You can't have the faith without the structure. The faith won't last. That's what he's arguing in here. So the truth and the life of the good news has a structure and a system that we must willingly fit into. And you're going to see it emerges as the body of Christ, that new city and that new society that we are. And we're going to learn what it looks like. We're going to learn what's the essence of it. We're going to learn how to pick one, the community that you need. We're going to learn what the impact of that community when we are operating the way we are supposed to in that structure. And you're going to learn that it's, if you don't fit into that structure, it's spiritual disaster. Sin is too deceitful, and you need people cheering you on. This is a great spiritual test for you to take. We've had a few of them through Hebrews. We'll have a couple more. But one of them is, is just simply this. Do I have that in my life? Do I have anyone cheering me on in the race? I think it's a great spiritual question to ask yourself right now. Like right now, you could say, I don't think my faith would be where it is if so-and-so was not in my life. You ought, to have, you ought to have people that fit in that. But let me just say this. You also need to be able to have other people say it about you. I wouldn't. There's some people in this room that I've helped keep their faith. Together, those two things build yours. As you're being cheered and as you're cheering on. You need both. There's no such thing as a standalone faith. You don't get to have the meat and not the bread. Now, um, now let's look at this text really quick. What he's saying here is, I need these people in my life, speaking into my life and showing me what the faith is at all times. That's what these leaders are. I'm going to, I'm going to tease out the specifics of that a little bit later. But here's what I want you to notice. He's connecting community and faith together in such a way that I, that I, that I can't separate them. Um, and to do so would be devastating. Let me, sh- let me show you how significant this is because I-, I want this sort of beginning and end to be very clear in your mind. Um, these leaders here, he says, remember your leaders and the outcome of their lives. This word here means they're dead. These are dead past leaders. So important is community in your life that you're not even supposed to forget the people that affected you in the past even though you don't live in the past anymore. The past matters, but today matters more. The past matters so much, people matter so much in your life that he's saying you shouldn't even forget the dead ones. (laughs) The ones that helped you get going. You should remember those because the past is important. The beginning was important. But he says, I'm concerned about today. And now he says, obey the leaders you do have now. So, I mean, these leaders just handed it off to these leaders. There's never a time in my life when someone's not helping me keep my faith. 
That's how significant it is that faith and community go together. Because these leaders instruct me on the way of faith and I get to imitate their faith when I don't know in the world I'm doing. I'll just mimic you. You teach me how to make it to the end. These are guys who made it to the end. The reason I remember them is not only that they're gone, it's that they made it and they remind me that I can make it. The race can be finished. So even the dead ones matter. Now, look at this. Look at Hebrews 12. If you go to Hebrews 12, 1, these are verses you're far more familiar with, but they fit in the context of, of all of Hebrews. And listen to it now in light of what we've just said. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, well, who are they? Dead people. The dead people have already made it. Get rid of every weight and sin, anything that would keep you from running this race with endurance. Don't bail on the race. Here's your cheerleaders. The past ones are cheerleaders. And you run this race that's set before you, but you gotta, you gotta endure. And then he says, you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. So I got these people cheering me. I've got my eyes focused on Jesus. Why Jesus? Well, he's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. This is the author and the finisher. He's the beginning and he is the end. He started my faith and he completes my faith. Again, with the issue of beginning and end. And I keep my eyes fixed on him so that I can make it all the way through in between. It's not just the beginning and the end. Not just some point, you know, I gave my life to Christ when I was 11, you know, and uh, I don't know what happened to me, but I ain't seen God since, uh, since then, and I'm 52. And you're just saying, yeah, I really hope I get in. I mean, a lot of people, yeah, I remember, I remember I made this commitment to God when I was little or younger or in the past, and I'm just hoping, you know, I don't know, I'm just hoping they remember me. When I get in, you know, I'll just, you know, they're closing the door and I'll stick my foot in there. Hopefully I'll be able to go, oh yeah, it's me. Oh yeah, that's right. You are on here. That's great. That's how most of us live our spiritual lives. There was a beginning. I remember that. And I'm hoping that that's all I needed to do to get in over here. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, uh-uh. Uh-uh. That's not how it works. You keep your eyes on Jesus. He started it and he will complete it. You don't get to just have him as the starter. He endured the cross. So not only did the witnesses endure and make it to the end, Jesus made it to the end. And he endured the cross to do it. And the shame, and he took his, and he's sitting on the throne today. It's a great question to ask. Well, what's he doing now? What's he doing now? Hold that thought. Think of him who endured so that you may not grow weary and your soul give up. That is the burden of the writer of Hebrews. Please don't tell me you had a great start and you bailed. Please don't tell me that. Somewhere along the line, you just looked at Jesus's you know, you sucked the blood out of him. You took the blood he gave to save you 
at least you made a confession of faith. Then you bailed on him and just hope you get in at the end of the day. You're oh, really hoping he remembers me. That's not the life. That is not the life. Now, see the, ch- <laughs> this is, I like this image. Thought of this this morning, I was thinking. What the witnesses do, what this community does, is they give you home field advantage. What we are are believers because we're foreigners and we're not in the city. We, you know, our city is away. We're basically playing an away game. The Christian life is an away game. We're not at the city yet. And the only way we're going to have an advantage and get to the end is if we, if we have home field advantage. How do you have home field advantage if you're not at home? You got enough cheering crowd. Right? We see it all the time in football games where especially college games where all these people travel and they get in those stands to make sure that even though it's an away game, it feels like a home game to you. That's what the church is for you. It's home game advantage because people are cheering you on. That's what the cloud of witnesses do. Even though we're playing a road game. Now, last thing I want to show you, and this just gets our feet wet into this text here. This is verse 8 right here. Uh, If you look at the sandwich, you're like, okay, so what's at the top of that sandwich? Like, what's verse 8 about? Well, you say, what's he going to say first? Well, look what he says. I bet you've all heard this. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today. And forever. This is not a statement that's trying to give you theology about Jesus' unchanging nature. This is a really important truth that comes right here to show you that Jesus is not somebody that you can just have yesterday. He's not the kind of person you just have a great beginning with. He's not here today, and I really hope I see him in the forever. Do you see what I'm saying? What he's trying to say is that Jesus, what he did for us, what the writer of Hebrews spends four chapters on, seven, eight, nine, and 10, what he did for us is effective for today, or I'm sorry, for yesterday, for today, and forever. If you know him, you know him through all the pieces. And today's the most critical one. Today, what are you doing with it? Don't tell me what you used to believe. Don't tell me what happened to you in the past. Tell me what you're doing with it today. Who are you with today? Who's cheering you on? Who's tying you to the mass when you go nuts? And don't tell me you never go nuts. That's arrogant. Don't tell me you're never deceived by sin. You need somebody pulling you out of the mud regularly. Does anybody here not need that? I'm just going to be honest with you, so I can't get into details right now, but some of my closest friends have kicked my butt over the last month in ways I don't even have words. Saved me from myself. What are you doing with them today? That's what the writer of Hebrews wants to know. So, 
you say, well, okay, I, I understand. There's a connection here. There's a journey, and today is the middle. Today's the middle that's the mess. How do you get through the mess? The beginning was pretty nice and easy, and we can't wait to get to heaven because that's going to be really great. It's the middle thing. Isn't that what's tearing us all up? That's why the writer of Hebrews uses these verses that I know you know too. Look at this. Oh, by the way, here's the structure of this verse laid out just like it is in the text. This is first, because he's the critical figure. It's emphatic. This is the centerpiece. Yesterday and today are combined, and then forever. He is the same through this whole piece. Now, oh, by the way, don't forget this. This, there's your today that matches the d- today of the beginning of Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice. Well, what are we doing with him now? What's high priest? Remember I asked you, I said, what do you think he's doing on the throne now? He made it through the cross. Good for you, Jesus. People go to Disney World. You know, where, where, where are you going now? After you just won the Super Bowl. You're going to Disney World. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's what we do. That's because of what Jesus Christ, this great high priest, did for us when he died on a cross and we got saved. That's our past. Thank you, Jesus. What are we supposed to do with that? Hold it. Do not let that go. What's that look like? For we don't have a high priest who's incapable of sympathizing with your weaknesses. What do you think? Jesus only thought, well, he's got a sin problem. I'll just uh, die for him and fix that. And then I'll leave him to all his weaknesses. I'll leave him alone through the, the wilderness journey. Nobody will cheer him on. I can't help you in the middle. No. He sympathizes with our weakness. He's been there where we are. And therefore we confidently approach Wait a minute. I approached him one time in my past, and that's it. That's not the writer of Hebrews' message. You approached him in the past because you needed salvation, and you got it. Now you just keep coming to that throne for grace whenever you need help. You say, what's he doing on the throne now after he died for me? He's there available to give you the grace that you need to make it through to the end. He does not want you to teach, treat him like he was just somebody good for the, the big salvation question. But he's no good for me today. You say, how do you approach the throne of grace? In community. How do you think God releases the grace benefits to you through each other? It's his favorite way to operate. That's what he's done. Now, let me close by just saying this. Today, very often, it would not be surprising and no one ought to be shocked by the fact that your faith is fragile and the journey's hard. Let's just assume that with each other. Don't assume anybody in here is fine Because we all know what a day can bring. 
So if your faith is weakened today, maybe your faith isn't very strong today. It's par for the course. That's not normal. I mean, that's not abnormal. Here's what would concern me more than if you told me your faith was a little weak today. That if you told me you've backed out of community and there's nobody helping you with that problem, that would concern me more than if you told me that your faith was a little weak today and you were being a little selfish and your desires are high and your defiance is high. But at least I have some people in my life keeping me on track. Can you say that? If you can't, that's the message for you. You say, I would like my faith to be better. Well, you can't do it alone. Not going to happen. It'll get confused on the weddings I did. I did one last night, and I did one in Burleson, and then I'm doing one in Granbury the week before. We're at this wedding, and the family I know, uh, and the mother of the bride, her mother was there, obviously, but she doesn't live in town, and so I don't see her as often. And she came up to me, and she was bawling. And we were talking because she doesn't live around here, but she listens to the Hebrew series. She says, I want to tell you something. And she's crying. She's brokenhearted. She lost her husband in the last, I don't know, somewhere in the last year, two years, very recently. And she's brokenhearted. It was painful. She said, I want, you, I want to tell you something. She goes, I lost my husband. I'm brokenhearted. And I'm an introvert. And she said, when my husband, you know, who was sort of the life of our little party, you know, he's the one that would drag me to things, keep me connected. But now he's gone and everything in me is just tightening up. And I find myself withdrawing from everything. I haven't been to church. and Wasn't going to church. Just alone. And then she said, I heard what you said about faith and community that they go together. And, and she said, and, and everything in me wanted to, to just tell you there's just no way that can be true. But she said, I got myself up and I went to one of the meetings that the church was having and I walked up to that pastor and I said, Pastor, I heard a sermon about how important community is and I want you to know I'm back. And that little that pastor grabbed her and said, yeah. And I thought to myself, how many of you is that? How many is that you? Get brokenhearted or you get sidetracked by something and then you know what you do? You withdraw. It's easy for some people to withdraw. It's hard for others. But if that's you, that's who the writer of Hebrews is speaking to. We need each other. And you say, what does that look like, really? How does it work? How do you pick the right community? Well, that's what this text is about. That's how he's going to. That's how he's going to end this book. So I, I hope you'll come back to hear that. Thank you, Lord, for this word, for this important 
context. Our faith matters so much. And that means our community matters so much. Right now, somebody in this room needs cheering. Somebody in this room needs to be tied to a mast or they're going to destroy themselves or someone else. Bro, that can be any one of us on any day. I pray there's people in our lives. And Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't even know you, who doesn't even know what it's like to, to have given their life to you, I pray that they would today. Thank you for what Jesus has done for us, not just in dying on a cross, but in providing the grace we need to get through today and the grace we're going to need to walk through the, into the city of heaven one day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.